When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Joining us on the podcast today is a man many of you college tennis fans will be familiar with. Of course, he's dedicated his life to the game of college tennis, entering, I believe, his 17th season at the helm of the Vanderbilt men's tennis program. Please welcome to the show head coach, Ian Dubenhay. Coach, welcome to our Cracked Interviews podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Alex? Uh, it's another day in paradise. I always say this beats real work. So, you know, super, super grateful uh, to have the opportunity to chat with you and super grateful to explore uh, where your team is at and obviously where your program finds itself entering 2022 because I just think it's a fascinating time in college tennis and we can get right into it. Obviously, you've been coaching, I believe, since 1982, uh, which obviously, again, I think you do not look like someone who's been coaching since 1982. That's why I had to look that up again. But you've seen so many generations of college tennis players filter through, whether it's, you know, the many talents of the 80s, think Rick Leach and Jeff Tarangos, Paul Harhooses of the world. You know, I grew up on stories of Paul Harhoose, which is, that just shows you my upbringing there. But you saw that generation. And then obviously, you know, the 90s Stanford teams with the Bryans and Paul Goldstein and Alex Kim playing five singles. All of that said, this is the first time in college tennis history where we have five classes of athletes all competing, you know, five high school classes because of the extended eligibility offered due to COVID-19. 
Where do you, Coach Duvenhag, think we are at right now in terms of the talent level in college tennis? Because I think it's a pretty easy argument to make that the field right now is as talented as it's ever been. Yeah, I don't think that uh, takes a genius to figure out. I mean, anytime you give guys uh, who have already played college tennis for four years a fifth year, you're just adding um, an extra layer of experience uh, onto the whole thing. And so, you know, the athletes that are getting to come back for a fifth year, they've just made it way more competitive. And, and uh, you know, if you want to think about it this way, um, many of them may have been trying to make it on, on the tour at this stage, and, and they're still getting to play in college tennis. So that's just made it that much more competitive. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, is that make it easier, more difficult from a coaching perspective in particular? And I want to get into where you guys are at Vanderbilt, but going to go a little out of order here as we go through our Power Five uh, interviews. I'm curious from a recruiting perspective because obviously you look at the transfer portal right now and it's free agency essentially in college tennis. If you want to fill a hole, you can find a player to do that. At the same time, you got to balance the future and eventually we'll get back to the normal system where there's only four classes of players in college tennis. How difficult has it been for you to navigate those two things? Yeah, I mean, through the years you've – those coaches out there who've coached for a long time know that you kind of have to reinvent yourself and, and COVID required us to reinvent ourselves in a number of ways. Um, you know, last year it was extremely difficult because uh, it seemed like every opponent of ours got their uh, fifth year seniors back and we didn't. And mm-hmm. so we were shorthanded almost uh, every time we played this year hopefully it'll be better because we have two fifth-year seniors back and they'll definitely help us um the free agency aspect that you're referring to is uh, a huge adjustment um you know and it's it's especially difficult for me because i'm pretty old school i happen to think that this is an amazing gig uh you made the comment earlier that it's another day in paradise you know i sometimes think that it's hard to believe that i've gotten to do this for my whole life and uh, I get paid to do it. And so, um, you know, I think it's a a great gig. And I also happen to think that the kids who get scholarships to get great educations and then also get to play tennis at the same time, that's a, it's a great opportunity for them also. And, and because of that, I, I'm a big believer in loyalty. And so I don't like this whole movement where people are playing for somebody for four years and, and then they go somewhere else for a fifth year. I, I sort of feel like, you know, if, if if somebody invested four years in you, not only money, but energy, time, you, you should play for them for a fifth year. And so I, I'm not really uh, very fond of these new uh, friendly transfer rules. Um, but you're right. Um, it basically means that if you've got a hole and, and, and you need a player, you can go out there and somehow you'll find somebody. Mm-hmm. And, again, I called the 90s the Stanford years. Could have easily called them the Florida years. I'd just like to get your juices going early here, as you know, as you know, during that time you had Jeff Morrison, Mark Merklin, uh, Dave Blair, and um, – or, yeah, Dave Blair, right? I'm, I'm not mixing yeah. up these yeah. names here. And so, um, obviously yeah. – 
again, you uh, have had the opportunity to recruit some of the best in the nation, and you know what that takes. And you know, you talk about loyalty. You were you and Jeff Morrison had built such a good relationship that you were ready to go with him and go pursue the pro tour as a coach. And so I'm curious. You know, you, you've seen those degrees of players. You know what it takes to get them. You know what it takes to coach them. I'm curious. You throw another wrinkle into the mix with NIL, and there's still so much unknown about how players can profit off of their name, their image, their likeness. Do you think that will play a factor in recruiting moving forward, that it's like, what's the best deal I can get for these players? Uh, I hope not, Alex. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, the, I'm the Barbara Walters, <clears throat> by the way, of college tennis. No easy questions. Yeah, no, I can. I'm just sitting here imagining a player saying to me during the recruiting process, what can you guys do for me NIL-wise? Uh, and, and I wouldn't even know where to begin. I would, I would be stumped. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that to to those kids out there who are you know being recruited and will be recruited in the future i would i would suggest you you know you find a school where you can get a great education and you find a coach that you think you would like to be around for four years and that's going to care about you as a person first and then also help you to become better as a tennis player and then focus on becoming the best you can be because if you do become really good, then the NIL and all the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. I, I think th- a preoccupation with that on the front end is just not the, the best strategy. No, absolutely. And that said, it's become the, re- you know, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how that reality uh, impacts college tennis moving forward. And of course, you talk about finding a great academic school that gets us to where you are at now and just a great place to thrive as a student athlete. And of course, you now find yourself year 17 at the University of Vanderbilt. And of course, you know, so many different talented players have filtered through there throughout your time as well. And you look at some of the highlights you guys have made NCAA Sweet 16, I believe that was back in 2013 and you know you look at what you guys were able to do second rounds 18 19 but you talk about last season obviously 6 and 16 is not a standard you hold yourself to ever any coaching job you know if you have a Duvenhag team you know they're going to be competing at the top of college tennis how difficult was last season for you from a coaching perspective how difficult was it for the guys just not only given uh you know, the struggles in terms of results, but just, again, all the circumstances that came with the 2021 season. Yeah, it was hard. Um, You know, it was very difficult. I do uh, completely agree with you that 6-16 and is woefully inadequate, Um, and it was not fun going through that. But I also, you know, when you go through a season like that, you're always afraid that your team is going to give up. And um, I'm so proud of, of, of our guys. I mean, late in the season, uh, in April, we, we had match points against Ole Miss when they were ranked 10 or 11 in the country. And I think it was late March, we played Florida 4-3. And so our guys hung in there um, in spite of the fact that we took it on the chin repeatedly. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't easy. But I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, we, we talked about this a lot. We talked about the fact that it's more important how we go about what we do than maybe what happens. And, uh, uh, yeah, um, it was hard. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine that for you. That said, again, when you look at the you know the conference you guys are competing in, SEC last season, 
just to have the repetitions your guys were able to get. And you mentioned you were a team that did not bring, I believe, you know, any additional fifth-year seniors back. And so you were. it was always going to be a transition sort of season, made that much more difficult, of course, given some of the roster configurations elsewhere. But you still look at some of the results. 4-3, Florida at home. 4-3, Ole Miss at home. Those are matches you guys are, you know, dropping narrowly uh, down the home stretch of your season. What growth did you see from your guys throughout the year, and how does that growth, you know, shape the offseason you guys had this past six months? Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, as hard as it is uh, when you lose like that, that adversity makes you grow up, <laughs> and it makes you look at things in perspective, and I – uh, can see it in our guys this year, and I think it'll help us this coming season because it's inevitable when you go through a season that you're going to face adversity. It's not a matter of if, it's when. <laughs> and hopefully um, we'll deal with adversity better this coming year than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, again, you look up and down the roster uh, from last season, what some of the guys were able to accomplish. Uh, in particular, I do uh, want to ask you, just again, some of the standout performers as we look through your team as what we can expect uh, from that team this season. Uh, this season, talk to me about George. Uh, obviously coming back for his fifth year now this year and the development he's had. He was a guy who got off to a roaring start in 2020 if you want to go all the way back to the pre-COVID season and now, you know, fifth year. Is he ready to compete with the best of the best in the SEC? It's a loaded conference and obviously always need. it's always nice to get a boost from a fifth year. Yeah, I mean, I would never sell uh, George uh, short. Um, you know, this is a kid who, who came to us uh, ranked, I don't know, 270 on tennisrecruiting.net and don't quote me on that. I might not be, have it exactly right, but the point <laughs> is he was not a highly ranked or or even recruited player as a junior, and he started for us as a freshman and won more matches than anybody else and moved up to two as a sophomore, up to one as a junior and senior, and it's, you know, my hunches probably will play for us at number one again this year. You know, he's grown up a lot. Um, we've worked very hard in the last year and a half on, on adding some plan B and plan C's to his game and making him more versatile. And so, you know, he's serving better. He's finishing at net better. He can slice the ball better. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know what he's ranked currently. I think 41 or 42 in the, in the on the ITA rankings. But I do feel he's ready to play with anybody. And a lot of that has to do with mentality. Um, you know, I, I felt there were times in the past where maybe he's had the game to play with the best, but maybe not uh, didn't give himself enough credit and didn't really truly believe that he was capable of playing with, with everybody or anybody for that matter. And I think you will see that happen this coming year. So I'm excited to see what George is going to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I want to get into the rest of your lineup as well, but uh, obviously we all know how important the doubles point is to every team, and uh, you know, I, I call it Russian roulette at this point. It's one set, no ad scoring. It's the most exciting 40 minutes in all of tennis, but it's also the most unpredictable 40 minutes yeah. uh, in all of tennis. 
You played nine doubles teams last year throughout the course of the year. That's on the higher side, no doubt about that. Is that again? I, I I quoted how many doubles teams, and they were at fourteen to another coach, and they go, "Wow, that's bad coaching by them." Is nine indicative of just trying to find the rhythms, trying to find the pairings, or you know, again, how much of has that been a focus for you guys this season? Is it continuity in pairings? You know, what what is it you're looking for? Yeah, before I try to answer your question, Alex, I have to compliment you on how much you know about things it's amazing you've got <laughs> the, you. the facts right at the at the tip of your fingers but yeah i mean my hunch my i would say that's a coach looking for something that can work um <laughs> so uh I, I don't know uh somebody else may say it's bad coaching but you know what happens when you lose that much is uh you get beat down and so you got a combination and they lose three or four or five times in a row and you just can see the lights go off mm-hmm. it's like they do not give themselves a chance and when that happens you you just sometimes have to try to change combinations and give them a new partner and see if you can breathe new life into it Mm-hmm. And, you know, for your team, obviously, this year that you have so many guys returning to the roster, what, you know, again, I, we can go down the list, whether it's Ferrero, who uh, obviously was stepping up at the number two singles position, and I think 6-11, and 11, given just his inexperience at that top of the lineup, that's not a bad first run, and you expect a jump from him and all of these guys. You have the option to play six returners, I suppose, this year is really uh, the point I'm trying to make. What does that, you know, again, what does an offseason look like when you have that much experience returning, particularly given, I'm sure, the taste in their mouth coming off of 2021? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things uh, about college tennis is that it's always unpredictable. And we came into the the fall this this year thinking, okay, this is pretty much what we're going to see from our guys, and we haven't necessarily seen that. We've been surprised. Um I think, you know, Hubert Kloper played six for us last year and had a a, a fair season, um, but he's gotten so much better. And so far this fall, has gotten wins against two guys in the top 50 in the country. And so he's going to move up in the lineup. Um, you know, Max uh, Freeman struggled uh, last year, and he's um, playing a lot better in the fall. Max and Sysom struggled very badly last year and did not win a lot of matches. He's playing a lot better this fall, um, you know. And then uh, you 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 mentioned uh, uh, Marcus Ferreira. You know, he stepped it up too and is more mature and is playing better. Um, you know, he's always been a great striker of the ball and hits it very cleanly. But he's he's serving much better and he's learning to finish at net better. Um, and so, you know, then in addition to that, we, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm forgetting somebody, but then we also have two new players and, and seem truce to transferred from, from, uh, Minnesota. And, uh, you know, it's been an adjustment for him with a new environment and a new coaching staff, but he's and the also sunshine, the sunshine <laughs> must throw him off the most. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget sunshine. Um, <laughs> he's also shown signs of brilliance. And then we've got, uh, Michael Ross, who um, also had a rough start as a freshman, but we know from his junior career that he's capable of playing at a very high level. Um, and then Connor Rob Wilcox uh, is probably going to be out for the year. He had uh, knee, He's having knee surgery here soon. 
And then last but not least, Jeremy Casabon, who really did a great job for us last year and, uh, you know, started the year at five and then moved all the way up to two at some point. Um, he had a sort of a, uh, an injury riddled fall um, and couldn't play as much as we would like to, but at the regional, he had a really good tournament. And, and so we're looking for him to continue um, on the great things that he did last year. So, you know, the, what I'm trying to say here is we've got a lot more possibilities this year. And um, I think our guys learned a lot from last year. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the spring. One thing I've learned talking to the SEC coaches about last offseason where there were no individual fall events, you didn't have the regionals, All-American, and you did, I suppose, have the National Fall Championship, but it was an abbreviated event. They talked about the value of the hidden duels you all played last fall and the opportunity to compete in a team environment despite it not being a formal thing. And I apologize for reusing this joke to my listeners, but I think it always crushes it. Um, Why they're hidden duels, no one knows. Like, what are we hiding about them? I don't understand understand it's the dumbest title in all of college tennis but that said I think the hidden duels are here to stay and I'm curious your reflection on the incorporation of them into the fall and if you learned anything about your team this offseason with that opportunity to play those hidden duels yeah um I think you're right I agree that they're here to stay um for many reasons um first of all you know you get at the end of the day an idea of where your ste- your team stands in relation to Auburn or in re- relation to Miami or in relation to North Carolina, who are all schools we played hidden duels uh, against this fall. And yeah, I got to echo that. I have no idea who came up with the term hidden duel because <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. But the other great advantage of it is, you know, we used to play tournaments in the fall and the first match for one of your guys would be at eight o'clock and the last match would be at 8 p.m. or sometimes even 9 p.m. And so you're there coaching from, you're, you're literally having 12, 13 hour coaching days. And so now with, with hidden duels, we're, you know, you, you hit the first ball at nine and you're done by noon. Um, and so it just, it's just much more compressed and, and you can get to see your whole team together at the same time, which gives you a much better idea of what you're going to look like in the spring, which is really ultimately the dual match season is what we're all gunning for. Mm-hmm. It actually, Tim Russell calls it the Hidale Dule, which in Latin translates to hidden duel. So that's what it actually is. It's a phony translation from Tim, and it just kind of stuck. No, that, there's no truth in that. Um, but... Yeah, it's just, again, even if the results don't weigh into the preseason rankings in the winter and et cetera, et cetera, I agree with you. It's just you want to see how your team competes in a team environment. And, okay, we've lost four first sets, but this guy sees that, and he responded and came back from a 3-5 deficit. I completely agree with you, and so I also do think they're here to stay. Um, Again, I I have some big-picture topics I want to ask you about as well, but uh, looking at your roster here, this season I do want to talk about your freshman uh in Michael Ross because I had the chance to see him play as well and again college tennis this year is just older than it usually is because you have all of these experienced players coming back that said I saw it with JJ Tracy he competed at one of our crack rackets events going into his freshman year and I was just like oh yeah this guy has it I and I watch a lot of college tennis if you can't tell 
I feel that way about Michael. Like, again, there's just a quality to him, the way he competes, the weapon he has, and his feel around the court. I'm curious what you saw for the freshman and what you, you – not necessarily expectations are for freshmen, but how difficult that transition is into the college ranks. Yeah, you know, it's uh, – we talk about this a lot. If if I could predict how somebody is going to adjust uh, in their first semester in college tennis, I'd probably be a much more effective coach. But sometimes <laughs> – sometimes guys uh, – you know, make the transition seamlessly, and some sometimes they don't. Um, I had a player um, here at Vanderbilt a number of years ago, uh, Gonzalez Austin, who became SEC Player of the Year, and I, can I knew still... him as AJ, but that's fair. Exactly, and <laughs> I can still remember AJ as, as a freshman in his first semester, not winning a set in practice. I mean, he he just uh, was like a fish out of water, and luckily um, he got it going very quickly in his freshman year once we hit the spring but yeah michael you know michael was competitive um in many of his matches against good players um he he lost in three sets to tad mclean who obviously had a good all-american um and he lost in three sets to a number of players and he shows uh absolute uh brilliant uh flashes where he plays points at such a high level that you just go wow Mm -hmm. um but i also think that for him you know he's starting to realize that he was talented enough in the juniors to take some points off and he he could get away with it and at this level he's not going to get away with it so um he's learned a lot this fall and um you know i think it's going to benefit him this this coming year that's an excellent point there and not to pick on his game, but you're right. There, it, it's the flashes. You'll see three points in a row when he's down love 30 to get the 40-30 lead where it's like, oh, I got to lock in here. And that was the quality I noticed where you're just like, okay, when he's locked in, he has it. So, again, you throw him in the mix with all the returners. I think it's going to be a really interesting season uh, down at Vanderbilt. But, uh, of course, looking at this roster, um, and this is something I've done in our series here, and I'm offering all of these coaches the chance, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but – I'm always fascinated to hear the recruiting pitch. And so, again, when you look at what's going down at Vanderbilt right now and uh, the academics, I know, obviously, exceptional. It's a beautiful campus. I'm making the pitch here for you. Um, But I'm (laughs) curious. Give me the pitch. Why should I come down and be a Vanderbilt Commodore? Yeah, I think that first and foremost, you have to talk about the fact that for all of us, tennis ends at some point. And so how do you want to be prepared for your life after tennis? And I think Vanderbilt academically, socially, um, athletically gives you a, a, a foundation that sets you up for the rest of your life. Um, you know, it's a beautiful campus, but uh, I don't know that that, that really ultimately has value. Um, I think the, the big three is uh, education, number one. Number two, um, how do you feel you're going to fit in with the, the, your teammates and the coaches. Um, you know, I think the recruiting visit for us is incredibly important because we get to spend time with the recruit and the recruit gets to, uh, to spend a lot of time with our players to see, is this the c- kind of group that I want to spend four years of my life with? Um, and, you know, for us, it's always been very much about family. We talk about the fact that we have to take care of each other and we have to build each other up. And so hopefully... Um, you know, recruits coming in 
really feel like they're going to be supported and they're going to be valued in, in our environment, not only by their fellow teammates, but by the coaches. Um, you know, and then uh, last but not least, there's the environment. Uh, Nashville's a great city, um, but, you know, I think that's probably less important than the first two. And um, uh, we we usually, when, when recruits visit, they really like Vanderbilt. And I think we also don't, really and this is probably my old school uh sentiments and maybe it's not smart but we don't wine and dine recruits i mean i don't want somebody you know being taken to ruth's chris for dinner and then when they co actually come here we eat at the cafeteria and they go whoa what happened um, <laughs> so we try to give them a real uh idea of what it's going to be like to be a student at vanderbilt university Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, I'm curious because, again, you start out at the University of Miami, tons of success there. You guys reach the finals in 85, and you know from there you go on to Florida, tons of success there as well, Final Four in 2000, and again, the I believe, what, three national championship wins uh, across the board. You then go and uh, coach the pros, and obviously you have the opportunity to serve as the USTA collegiate coach as well. I'm curious – what brought you back to college tennis? What, you know, obviously the Vanderbilt job comes open. What made you, you know, what made that appeal to you? Yeah, I think a, a, a number of things were at play. I said to, to our former women's tennis coach, Jeff McDonald, with whom I've been very good friends with for decades. I said to him many, many years ago when I was still at Florida, I said, you know, I don't know whether I will ever coach it at a place other than Florida, but if I do, I would love for that to be at Vanderbilt. And it was just an offhanded comment that I made. And then, um, you know, I was at the, the Key Biscayne, the Erickson tournament um, uh, in 2005. And I, I was on a run one day and my phone rang and I was like, who's this? And I just luckily happened to answer it. And it was Jeff. And the first thing he said was, hey, Ian, are you still interested in coaching at Vanderbilt? And I was like, whoa, why? <laughs> and it, it came at a good time. I mean, the, the, the four and a half years that I spent on tour was uh, a very, very fun and uh, meaningful time in my life. And I have great memories of it. But it's also very difficult to travel 26, 27, 28 weeks a year. And I was away from my wife a lot. And so it came at a time where I was ready to not travel so much and have a more normal life. And so, yeah, it's, it was serendipitous, but it wasn't really um, a difficult decision. Uh, once I was offered the job, I, I didn't hesitate to come to Nashville and be at Vanderbilt. Were there things you picked up while coaching on the pros that you've now brought into your, the way you coach college? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, I think I still remember vividly realizing within the first six months that, wow, the pros missed too. I kind of... <laughs> I kind of uh, erroneously thought that when you get to the next level, they just don't make mistakes. But mm -hmm. you know, this is this has never been a game of perfect. And so um, I also learned that that they will make you hit the extra ball way more often than than in college. If they get their racket on the ball, you're going to have to hit another shot. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a lot of things that I learned out there that um, that were helpful. Do you still view college – I mean, still view. I imagine the answer is yes. 
in what ways i'm reframing my question here i know vanderbilt michigan we, there's comparisons to make here so there's some love between us two <laughs> some say vanderbilt's the michigan of the south um but None of that. Again, sorry. As you can tell, I've been doing a lot of interviews here this morning. I'm working. I always say these interviews are just the way I work on my stand-up routines, uh, which kill at the local sports club. Um, but sure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in what ways is college tennis best suited to prepare pro tennis players? Wow. That's a question that nobody's ever asked me before. <laughs> um, you know, I think that it's the same game. Mm-hmm. It's not as if um, uh, there's a big delineation between how the pros play the game and how the best college tennis players play the game. Um, if you have any aspirations of playing at the next level, you have to be able to get through your peers and, and prove that you're one of the best, not only on your team, but in college. And so I think that it's a training ground for the next level. Um I think the, the, the big adjustment, and, and this is also something I learned in 2001 when I went with Jeff Morrison, um, the, the big difference is here you're part of a team. You've you're, you got five other guys around you that are playing um, and a bunch of teammates in the stands, and suddenly when you're on the pro tour, you're on your own. And it's unfortunate, but a lot of players – don't even or can't afford a coach to be in their corner day in and day out. And it's very difficult to make it unless you have a coach who can look out for you day in and day out. But I do think that, um, you know, the, the same things that make you successful on tour are going to help you become successful in college tennis. You have to be able to execute at a very high level. You have to understand the game strategically and, and make the right decisions, especially on big points. And then above all, you have to have the right mentality. Um, we've said over and over that tennis is not a game of perfect and things are going to go wrong. And you see how even on the pro tour, if you cannot handle adversity and if you lose your composure and go crazy when things go wrong, it hurts you in a very uh, definite way. So I think college in particular, when we get 17 and 18 year old kids who are inclined to lose composure when things go wrong, this is where you learn to keep it together and, and stay calm and try to problem solve. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you saw guys like, you know, AJ or obviously Jeff or Mark, are there qualities they have that just, you know, you know, transcend the guys who do go on to have large degrees of success in college or go on to have success in the pros? Are there qualities you do see amongst them? I mean, obviously, they hit the forehand well. They move out of the corners well. But are there just work ethic traits they all shared? Yeah, I actually sat down a number of years ago and tried to figure out what key ingredients they all bring to the table. I think first and foremost – they all have tremendous desire. I mean, you can't make their goals for them. They they want to be successful, and in many cases, they want to play at the next level. Secondly, they're they're almost always willing to listen and learn. Um, you know, I've had some very very talented tennis players who thought they knew it all when they showed up on campus, and really, in retrospect, they haven't gotten a lot better. So. You, you have to, you have to on the one hand, think a great deal of yourself and your ability and your potential. But on the other hand, you have to have enough humility to, to be able to learn new things. Um, thirdly, 
they all learn if they don't start off with good attitudes they learn to have a good attitude mm-hmm. um and then the the last thing is you know they're all great competitors i was talking to ryan lipman about this a few days ago and he's another great example of a great college tennis player who embodies those things you you have to compete really well and the fact of the matter is that sometimes the best player on the court, the, the one who hits the ball, the best doesn't always win. Sometimes it's the guy who competes the best. As a matter of fact, it's almost always the guy who competes the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm that with that in mind, one dual match on the line, Jeff versus Mark, who are you taking? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but I'm going to plead the fifth there because I, I – <laughs> I love them both, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to make that determination. Uh, so they were both uh, great players for us, and I hold them both in high regard. And I don't want to make that choice. All right, so the answer is Jeff. That's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious again because you got to see some of the best of the best, and obviously your Florida teams were competing with the best and the best. Is the 98 Stanford team the best college tennis team of all time? I mean, you got to see some of the other nominees, the 11 USC team. Yana Konofman's playing five singles. He ends up as a top 100 player, and I think all of those guys were top 200 or better. Uh, You can nominate the Virginia teams if you want to throw them out there as well. But that 98 Stanford team, well, they lose three, I think, points all season long. Alex Kim at five. How good were they? Yeah, ridiculously good. (laughs) I mean, I think they can make a very credible claim to being the best college tennis team of all time but you know there have been there have been so many great teams i mean i i remember in my playing days uh trinity university who had uh an amazing team with ben mccowan and sammy jamalva and larry gottfried and eric iskursky i mean they were four recruits who were all ranked in the top six or seven in the country and they went to trinity together um and chuck mckinley had great teams um yeah i i you know um the 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 interesting thing is that it's not always even about who's the best it's sometimes sometimes you need a little luck along the way too um and while it's true that the best players make their own luck um Sometimes there have been some really great teams that, for whatever reason, didn't quite win at all. Mm-hmm. No. Is the 75 Miami team that made the finals, is that how you end up there? Uh, that had a lot to do with it. Um, uh, there was a South African on that team that, that saw me play in South Africa, and he had talked to the coach, and so they made me an offer, and that's one of the reasons why. Is, is that the Phil there. Eagleson era, or is that a little bit later? Yeah, that's Johnny Eagle. Eagleton, yeah. Yeah, okay. Oh, John, yeah, not Phil, excuse me. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. all, it's all right. Again, I, I run in those circles. I don't know how, but I run in those circles. Coach, so how Sound, do you end up it, in Miami? It sounds to me like you run in all circles. <laughs> That's how I stay skinny, Coach. Uh, but, <laughs> no, again, how do you end up at Miami? Yeah, so um, I there was a, a circuit over the Christmas holidays in South Africa called this, the Sugar Circuit, and – uh, Johnny had come back from uh, from Miami to play it, and uh, he and I ran into each other, and he saw me play, and I guess he spoke to to Coach Lewis, and Coach Lewis made me an offer, and I decided to go to Miami. 
Mm-hmm. And did you know then during your playing years, oh, I, I like this college tennis. I think there's there's a pathway for me here. You know, I, I loved college tennis. I, I had four great years at Miami, but I did not think um, that I was going to be in the business. I uh, majored in finance. I went uh, mm-hmm. to play for a couple of years, long enough to figure out that I wasn't good enough to, to really make it. And so I went back to Miami and, and uh, uh, started working on my MBA. And while I was doing that, uh, the woman's tennis coach at Miami uh, resigned over the Christmas holidays, and they asked me to get the team through the year, and they told me that they would pay my tuition. So I started coaching the women's tennis team at the age of 23 and loved it. And it wasn't part of the plan. I didn't expect to love it. Um, as a matter of fact, I had to spend time sort of figuring out exactly why I liked it so much. And we had a really good year. We got to the quarterfinals of the NCAAs, and then they came back that summer and offered me the permanent position, and I took it, and the rest is history. I've been a college tennis coach ever since. An extraordinarily successful one. With that in mind, and I'm reserving the right to bring you back on the show because I have many more questions to go through. Like, again, uh, <laughs> the Pepperdine story. So I grew up on, like, you know, Jerome Jones and Robbie Weiss. Like, that that team, how good were they? And just, you know, the Gilbert years and all that sorts of stuff. And then you get to the leech and everything. So I, I want to talk about all of that because, you know, did I, did I mention my Buff Faro reference yet? I always got to name drop Buff Faro whenever possible. Um, but... Um, you know, I am curious for you again. Some of the issues confronting college tennis now, and just kind of rapid fire here down the home stretch, the 500 rule. We saw that waived in 2021, and obviously that rule. For those who aren't familiar, you have to be 500 or better to reach the NCAA tournament. Would you be fine if they got rid of that permanently? I've been uh, campaigning for them <laughs> to get rid of that permanently ever since the beginning. I've just never thought that was a good rule um there there have been times i remember one year we were ranked 12th in the country and we were eighth in the sec Mm -hmm. and we were barely above 500 Mm -hmm. and so i just don't think you're comparing apples to apples when you're talking about the 500 rule it's clearly possible for a team to be 500 and be an excellent team and for another team to have won 75% of their matches and not be even in the same ballpark as the 500 team. So I do not like the rule and never have. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I think the idea is to introduce, right, to make the mid-majors play the Power Fives and to just, you know, try and encourage that because if that's not there, why not just play only Power Five schools if you're Power Five? At the same time, I agree with you. You shouldn't punish teams for playing a hard schedule. And it's just it feels like that's what the 500 rule does, right? Right, right. And so, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm with they, you. Yeah, if they come up with an RPI or some other system that takes that, – that, that values strength of schedule, then I – be willing to listen but right now the rule just doesn't make sense to me let me say one of the circles i run in is with the mathematicians we're trying we're trying we're doing what <laughs> well, we thanks. can for you yeah thanks. of course um, again some of the other ones here and i know this is a long time rule individuals spring versus fall do you have a preference one way or the other alex i'm really torn on that one you know <laughs> i'm in in one sense i'm a traditionalist and i think about all these great names in our sport you know the john McEnroe's, uh uh 
that that won this tournament after the NCAA team tournament, and I I like the tradition of that. But it is true that the event has gotten very long, that the year is very long, and I can see the rationale between making the fall uh, more an individual season and the spring all team. Um, so I'm a little torn about that one and I'm, you know, uh, I'm going to leave it to younger minds to make the decision on that one. Uh, yeah. Ones with less to do. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we do here. Um, well, with that in mind, NTA individuals incentivizing it, obviously dream world, it would be held at the U S open. That's beyond our control but should the winner get a wild card regardless of nationality obviously it's the USTA's decision but if you're the USTA do you award it regardless you know I'm I'm a, a foreign born American I've, I've had citizens for citizenship for a long time um, and I would say no I mean I think the USTA is in the business of doing everything they can to promote American tennis, and I feel bad for a Swede or, uh, you know, somebody from Australia who wins the NCAA tournament and they don't get a wild card into the U.S. Open. But I do not think that the USDA, uh, their responsibility is not to give wild cards to international players. Interesting. No, I, I, that's fair. Again, it's the USTA and the U.S. Open is the cash cow that pays the bills for everything. So you got to put exactly. se- yeah butts in seats. Now, I think I would argue that a proper promotion of college tennis, Nuno Borges could feel like a byproduct of the American system, and then maybe he does put butts in seats. But I, it's not. Again, it's it's unless it, yes, it makes sense. American winners that you that it would, the USTA would. Keep an eye out on them. All right, now we're getting goofy here down the home stretch. Coin okay. toss. I think it's overrated. I think it's a missed opportunity. Instead, head coaches drop and hit one point. Winner decides the serving arrangements on every court. Tell me <laughs> the crowd doesn't get into it. <laughs> I think it would be a great incentive to get butts in the seats talking about that. <laughs> um, I would be okay with that as long as I could maybe defer to my associate coach to, to play that point. Some of us get to a, a stage in our lives where so many parts of our bodies hurt that we <laughs> should not be playing points. So the rule was if you have an AARP card over 50, you can defer to the assistant. Yeah, I would even say over 60. Um, but oh. I think if you're... If you're in your 50s, you you have a responsibility to try to stay in shape. But once you hit the roaring 60s, forget it. I love it. I'm in on that. Well, then the other one, and this gets goofy, and I, again, quick no, totally acceptable here. Lawless lineup. So to truly emphasize home court advantage, away team submits in advance, home team gets to match up however they want. We just, we double down on the parity. Yes or no? No. <laughs> I can't emphasize this enough. Unanimous nose on that one. Like, it's a quick no, too. Because SEC, what, submits Tuesdays, I want to say, for their lineups? What's that? SEC submits the lineups on Tuesday, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, I don't know. I always like a little little mind game, some chicane. You know, again, let's just, let's get things funky. But at the same time, yeah, uh, I get that. If you never had to do a Zoom conference with your team again, would you be okay with it? Absolutely. (laughs) I, I think the COVID, the whole COVID thing was one of the the toughest times, all of us, and not just, you know, 
tennis team. So all of us have gone through, and I think it's going to be a long time before we fully know the ramifications of being living a life of isolation and not being able to be with other people. I think we're as beings, we're social beings and we need to be around people. And it, it, yeah, I, I, I would gladly not do another zoom call with my team ever. That said, who is the one player in particular, the biggest, uh, I suppose, nuisance on the Zoom, the biggest disruption on your team? Oh, if you can mute him, yeah, you can just use the mute function on them. George Harwell is always, we, we say George Har- Harwell is a pest, but we're <laughs> glad he's our pest. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that. Um, no, again, then with that in mind, my last question to you, and I suppose it's sort of a serious one, but when fans watch your team compete this season, what do you want the takeaway to be? I want the takeaway to be that they are impervious. No matter what happens, they stay positive and they compete like there's no tomorrow, regardless of the score, regardless of what just happened. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, then, with that in mind, Coach, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, I was sincere when I said it. We're going to have you back on the show again because I've got list number two of questions to get to. I just don't want to keep you here for four hours. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time. I don't know what the cheer is for Vanderbilt, like if it's Go Vandy or Go Doors. Yeah, I see the fingers are up. Yeah, anchor down. Anchor down. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Coach. Be safe. Be healthy. Good luck to you and the team this season. Thank you, Alex. You too.